0: reading of God's Word. Once again, Psalm chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Providence here, the Word of the Lord. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts and on your own beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated.
1: Amen. Good morning. Good morning. Happy Mother's Day. Thank you. <laughs> Hurts. heard hurt a male thank you. All right. <laughs> Not to you, bub. All right. Anyways, happy Mother's Day to you. My name's Court. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. <clears throat> I want to say... Uh, just reiterate what Eric said, if it is your first time, we're so glad that you joined us, and we're so glad you made us a part of your week. Hopefully someone's grabbed you, tried to connect you to the life of the church, and shared with you a little bit about who we are. If you don't have a home church, we'd love for you to join us, uh, become a member here at Providence, and you could just grab uh, our Connect card, fill it out, let us know that you're here, or grab someone on your way out by the Connect booth, and they can kind of let you know a little bit about what we're trying to do. But I want to kind of hop in. Uh, as Eric said, we are in this, a series on the Psalms and the Proverbs, and we're unpacking how we are called to engage with our emotions with both honesty and wisdom. And so kind of taking the Psalms where you find this vulnerable honesty from David and other psalmists about their emotion, and then taking the Proverbs where you find this wisdom surrounding from Solomon how we should engage with our emotions. And this morning, I'm really excited at Psalm 4th, we're going to be talking about anger and the justice of God. So if you're taking notes, we're going to be talking about anger and the justice of God. And one of the reasons that I'm excited to talk about anger is because I find myself to be an angry person sometimes, okay? So excited is not necessarily the right word when I prepared the sermon, but now I'm excited to talk about it, all right? Uh, If you don't know a little bit about myself, I I have a tendency, didn't recognize this tendency to myself until a little bit older into my adulthood, but my tendency is to uh, not want to experience the, the world in an array of emotions and therefore to be more at arm's length with all of the emotions that come with living life. And by that, I mean, for the most part, you can kind of see me as a very even-keeled guy. You're not going to see me really high, angry, frustrated, or really low. I kind of ride that middle ground, right? What I realized later on in my adult life is that what was created by me being really repressive, really suppressing a lot of the emotions that come with living life in a broken world is that riding right below the surface of that even-keeled veneer was just little spikes of anger that would pop up. Didn't know why they would happen, but they would happen. And of course, if you're married in the room, you know who gets to be, you know, privy to all of the little spikes of anger? My lovely wife, right? And it would always, it wouldn't necessarily even be something that should make you angry. You get in the car, you're in a hurry to go somewhere, you know, she gets in, spills a cup of coffee, slightly, not even on me, I'm mad about it. Why are you mad about it? I don't know, I'm just mad about it. You know, driving uh, doesn't even have to, like, it doesn't even have to be a traffic, just a traffic light, just kind of frustrates me generally, uh, and I would kind of ride on this low-level tension and then until I would snap out of it and then realize that I'd go into this repentance cycle, like, oh, I shouldn't have been angry about that, I'm sorry, and it kind of like spiked its way up. Another one for me as a man, and ladies, maybe you identify this, but sports did it to me. Not, it it, it wasn't, didn't have to necessarily be engaging in sports, although that was the height of it, also just watching sports. Just watching sports would get me a little angry. Like, I would have this vitriol toward my own team if they did something awful that I just felt like, you know, I'm done with them. Write them off, fire them all. They're not humans. You know, I'm done. All right. Most recently, Steph Curry. Don't like him, not even a human. He's a Christian brother. I'm like, you know what? Don't care what happens to him, honestly. Get him out of Houston. I hope it floods just his car the whole way to the airport. You know, that's how I felt. And then when I get on the basketball court to play, you know, I find myself, to, you know, 30-year-old man diving for loose balls on the concrete, you know, to win a pickup game. I come home bleeding with the crutches. My wife's like, what happened? I won. You know, mad, mad at stuff, you know. And that low-level, like, residual anger just kind of was beneath the surface. But I would have never defined myself as an angry person, and I would venture to say that no one, most people around me wouldn't consider me an angry person, and yet it was there. It's kind of that low-level anger that would spike itself. Dan Allender, a guy who wrote a book called The Cry of the Soul, he's a Christian counselor, he says, anger can be lovely and redemptive, but anger can also be ugly and vindictive. So he says, listen, anger is actually an emotion that can be righteous and it can be unrighteous. We see this in the life of Christ in that Jesus at times was angry. One of them was whenever he walked to the temple they were, uh, they were selling um, sacrifices, and they were doing it in a way that extorted the people for their sacrifices. So they were, like, kind of uh, gouging them for, for pigeons or gouging them for, uh, you know, the sacrifices they were meant to make. Jesus got angry about this. He starts fashioning his own whip. Just so you know, like, if a guy starts fashioning his own whip inside, you know, with an angry look on his face, you just kind of vacate, right? He whips everybody out of the temple says, zeal for your house has consumed me, is what Jesus said. He's quoting the Old Testament, but this idea of consuming him was this inner rage about this injustice that was happening at God's house. Well, that's an example of righteous anger. Some of you might experience righteous anger. Someone does something to to you personally or to one of your loved ones that is just wrong, that it's black and white, there's no two ways against it, it was wrong. Let someone do something as as a husband or a wife, or as a father and a mother to your kids that's unjust. And you start noticing this kind of like flare-up, right, of anger. Well, there could be a righteous anger there. Then we have examples in the Bible of unrighteous anger. One of the first examples would be uh, Cain and Abel, the first uh, pair of brothers. And if you have two two children that are boys, then you've probably already experienced a lot of unrighteous anger uh, in your own home. But what happens is Abel and Cain, they both bring an offering before God. Cain's offering is not accepted. Abel's offering is accepted. And Cain, out of deep rage and anger, kills his brother. Population four on the earth, and they already killed 25% of the people because anger was a problem from the very beginning, right? So the Bible tells us there's righteous anger, there's unrighteous anger. The questions that I want to kind of talk about this morning that I think Psalm 4 unpacks for us is how do you tell the difference? How do you tell the difference between when you're being righteously angry and you're actually engaging with that anger in a a holy way, or when you're unrighteously angry and you're engaging with it in a way that leads to destruction? Because the Proverbs, which we'll talk about next week about anger, will talk about how anger lodges itself in the the bosom or the heart of a fool. So how do you know if you're being a fool or if you're being wise? Well, uh, David's going to lead us here into some, I think, some really practical methods, but also some heart-level truth about righteous and unrighteous anger. He's gonna talk about the object of our anger, how we express our anger, and why anger is unleashed. And he's gonna do all of this as he writes this song of his own anger, expressing it to God. So before we do that, let me pray for us. And the reason that I wanna pray for us is to ask God to do what I can't do, which is to open the eyes of our heart to the word, make us receptive to hear the truth. Because the, here's the thing, what we don't want is a worldly wisdom about how to deal with emotion. What we need is the word of God, right? So let's, let's pray that the Lord would open our ears to hear that. Feel bow your heads with me. Father, um, first we want to confess that even if we are unwilling or if we simply are ignorant of our anger, we can be and are angry people, Lord. It's rooted in various areas for all of us, Lord, but we confess to you that there's unrighteous anger that can lodge itself in our hearts and we ask that you'd wash us clean. We also, Lord, confess to you that sometimes there's righteous anger that we just push away because we're afraid of what might come out if we were to engage with it. And so, Lord, would you help us, teach us that there's a third way. And Holy Spirit, would you open our hearts to hear your wisdom and your truth and your word. And most of all, God, would you meet us in the midst of our experience with a broken and fallen world? Help us to come to you, move the feet of our soul towards you and not away from you this morning. Let me ask all these things in Christ's name, amen. So the first thing that David says here is this, righteous anger acknowledges and mourns the injustice of the world. Righteous anger acknowledges and mourns the injustices of the world. Before I hop into verse 4, I'll say this. If you don't know the story of David, a quick snapshot might look like this. David, as a young man, could have been perceived as kind of like a boy wonder. Young teenage boy, called out of the field, put on display in front of the whole nation, stands up to a giant, kills the giant, everyone roars, and the enemies of Israel are defeated before King Saul and everyone who watched. This little boy comes up to Goliath, he brings his stone, he says, you will not defy the armies of the living God. He kills this great warrior of the time. It says that Goliath was like nine foot six, that's serious. You guys ever seen Shaq? It's two feet taller than Shaq, all right? That's serious. I once saw Shaq, you ever seen Shaq in the Buick commercials? Where he's sitting in a Buick, that ain't real, all right? But he's like humongous, his feet are like on the dash. This guy was nine foot six, and David killed him, a shepherd boy. So he's kind of like a boy wonder. If you only take that snapshot of David, you're getting an incomplete picture, though, of what his life was like, because for the next 14 years after David is anointed king by the prophet Samuel, he spends his life on the run from King Saul, being chased by not just Saul, but by armies being lied about, rumors being spread about him. He's displaced from his family. He gets married and then he's displaced from his family that he's married wife and his children. He ends up hiding in deserts, in the wilderness, in caves, dens of the earth is what they say, constantly running away from this guy who he's only done good for. And so Psalm 4 is this pickup of him feeling that there's this consistent injustice between what God said would happen, you're going to be the king of Israel, and his actual realities of life. Now, I think that we can relate with this before we even jump in to say that sometimes as Christians we have the promises of God that we've been promised to experience and then the realities of life that feel like they don't intertwine all that well. It feels as though we've been promised that we're children of God and we have security and we have peace and we have joy. And then the everyday realities of life begin to squash into that and you start feeling like that's not actually true. And rather than engaging with God about that, many times what we'll do is we kind of disengage and we just kind of try to medicate, right? Well, David does a different thing. He just outright comes to God and starts talking to him about it. So verse 1 starts like this. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. That sounds pretty um, affirmative or strong, right? Answer me, God. You ever had your mom, like, text you that when you're, not, when you're not answering, right? Like, you missed a bunch of calls, a bunch of screening. Answer me now. Or your spouse. Like, answer me, dot, 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 now, all caps. It's kind of what you feel from, from David. Answer me, O oh God, of my righteousness. Every time I hear David say that, I'm like red lights. Bam Don't say that. You're not righteous. I'm like doing, you know, I'm doing theology for David, right? I'm like, you're not righteous. Isaiah said your righteousness is filthy rags. Stop praying to God according to your righteousness. This is not going to go well for you. says, answer me. O God of my righteousness, you've given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me, hear my prayer. These are exclamation points, by the way. Then, O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? The first thing that David does in this psalm is he laments and mourns the fact, he expresses deep anger and anguish over the fact that people are believing lies that have been spread about him. And not just that the lies are being spread about his character, but that the people who are supposed to be closest to him are believing that junk. It makes him angry. It's like, they all saw me defeat Goliath. They all saw me serve Saul faithfully. They saw me uh, play the harp while Saul was tormented by demons. And then the man stood up and threw a spirit at me and tried to kill me. And I ran away and didn't bite him. He said, they've seen me get into a cave with Saul where I could have taken his life, but I cut the edge of his robe off and said, I won't lay my hand against the Lord's anointed. They saw Saul repent to me and say, I'm the evil one. I'll never do it again. And then come back after me. And he says, and yet still they're believing the lies that somehow I'm a usurper of the throne. He's angry. He's mad about it. Now, I think this is relatable. Not necessarily the fact that hopefully none of you have a hit out on you, like an assassination attempt on your life. If you do, please call the police. We are in a different time, okay? But I think it's relatable in that, have you ever had a moment where you feel as though someone is lying about you, telling other people who know you lies and they're believing those lies and it frustrates you? Someone's slandering your character. It's unjust, right? Have you ever had a moment where you're like, I tried to do the right thing and I got the wrong thing in return? That's a terrible feeling, isn't it? That starts from like the youngest age, where like in a moment's notice, and I know we got a lot of teachers in the room, and God bless you teachers, you can't see everything right, but there's moments where maybe you get mad at a child or a student that actually wasn't the perpetrator, and now that kid has this sense of injustice where he's like, I did the right thing, and now I get in trouble? It starts at a young age, where we start feeling this sense of like, every time I do the right thing doesn't always equate to me getting the right thing in return, and David, at the height of this in his life, is angry about it. And I think that what we need to recognize here is, okay, that's righteous anger. When injustice has impacted your life in such a way that you feel like this isn't fair or true or right and you get angry about that, that's not sin. But there's another side, which is unrighteous anger, right? Because we're human beings, many of us, we perceive injustices against ourselves all the time that aren't unjust. An example would be the 19-year-old version or 18-year-old version of Court Marley that gets stopped by the police because he's speeding. I'm just angry. How dare he stop me? I'm just trying to get where I'm going. I mean, we pay his salary. Don't we pay taxes? Now, mind you, my taxes at that time were minimal, all right? But I'm, a, I'm, I'm mad. How dare he stop me? He's keeping me from where I'm going and giving me a ticket. There. You know what they're doing? They're targeting me. All <laughs> right. You get all, all, all angry, right? If you are a teacher, how about this? Have you ever had a student that get, starts getting mad because you're actually correcting them and they're the one that's the problem? Like, you just don't like me, miss. Don't you love when they call you miss? <laughs> don't call you by your name. Miss, I'm just, miss, you're always on my case. Well, that's, that's a perceived injustice, but you're actually the problem, right? But you can still get angry about perceived injustice and here's why, because we always think we're Right? Do you know why you argue with your spouse? Because you both think you're right all the time. I have a secret that'll change your life. You're not always right. Neither is he or she, right? So this is a major factor in how we engage with anger is whether it's real injustice or perceived injustice. What we find with David here is there is real injustice, but listen to me, unrighteous anger produces a ton of bad fruit when it's just perceived. Examples. Well, since it's Mother's Day, let's talk about kids, so let's, kids are a great source of joy, aren't they? Thank God. We've got like hundreds of them back there, okay? It's amazing. We're keeping them safe, and that is all we promise. <laughs> we're doing a lot of other things we're hoping happens, okay? Safety, though, you can be okay. All right. Kids are a great source of joy. Let's be honest, though, and some of you kids are in here. I'm just going to be honest. They're also a great source of anger. And that starts with trite. Right, Your kid's in the back seat singing Baby Shark for the 70,000th time, and that makes you angry, right? Just frustrated, just angry. And that's a trite anger, but you're just like, just close it. Or how about this? that Your kid grows up a little bit, and they start being generally disobedient, and you have to ask 75,000 times for them to do simple things like clean their room. And it starts to become a habit. That's like a mid-grade anger, right? Because it's not as trite as Baby Shark. Like, this could actually carry over, and you could very well be a felon. So let's make sure... <laughs> We address this, I'm mad about it. Then you have like deeper anger that come with kids, right? And this is the anger that's not just directed at your children, but it starts getting directed in other areas. you don't recognize it with the first two grades because you know those are just not as big of a deal. but grade three starts to unveil that maybe it's not just horizontal, but it's vertical. Let me give you some examples. So like your kids get a little bit older and a little bit older, they start having minds of their own, they start doing things that you would never want them to do, and then you start saying, hold on, I raised you totally differently than this. Not only are you angry at them, but then you start turning towards God, and you're saying, I did the right things. Like, I put the combination lock in, and I pulled, and the thing didn't open. What's going on? I'm frustrated now. I I prayed for my children. I prayed over them and with them. I modeled it. We went to church, and, and now my kid's doing this ridiculous, crazy stuff, and I'm a little bit angry about it. Or how about this, Um, losing a child, great source of joy, right? Oh man, can it be a great source of deep, deep sorrow as well? And not just sorrow, but anger, why? Why do some lose children? And and, and it doesn't matter if this is like a a miscarriage or if this is like they're 9, 10, 11 years old, 4 years old, 12 years old, 20 years old, 30, moms, does it matter what age they are? Nope. How about an infertility struggle? Around kids. That can get you angry, can't it? That seems very unfair. Let's be really honest at a church like Providence, it can be really unfair whenever it's like Baby Central. You're popping out kids everywhere. I don't even know how you guys do it. It's like, well, we planned it. Oh, good. That's what I've been missing. I should have been planning it. That's what you got to do. Yeah, we just decided we're going to do it this time. That's what happens. My husband walks in and says, this is going to happen, and it does. That's good, okay, I'll work on that. You got a training curriculum or anything six weeks through like the book of Song of Songs that I could learn to do that? You can get quickly angry, can't you, where it seems like, is it because of my sin? Do I have hidden sin that this is happening to me? And you start to have this residual anger burns inside of you and you might mistake it to be angry at people for what they have and you don't but deep down it's anger at God because you are out of control and helpless and you know he is the only one who can step in and yet it seems to be that he won't and so unrighteous anger can take a ton of forms right possessiveness you feel like you're not satisfied in any area of your life so if you have a few areas that do satisfy you're going to be possessive over those to devour them or impatience. You want to punish other people for getting in the way of your desires. Therefore, you are impatient with them. You are snappy with them. Even if they are not the ones that are getting in the way of your desires, if you don't feel like you can punish God, you can punish your spouse. And at least someone gets to feel your wrath because you feel like you're under his. Sarcasm. Some of us, we don't consider ourselves to be angry people, but we're really sarcastic people. Well, sarcasm is there to mask the true feelings of anger and dissatisfaction in your heart. And then, lastly, of course, like the ultimate manifestation of anger in the heart is what? Murder, where we take an exact ultimate justice on what we perceive to be unjust. See, unrighteous anger always wants to destroy and dethrone the true authority by taking matters into our own hands. That's what Cain was doing. God didn't get it right by accepting my brother, I'll give him what he deserves. Unrighteous anger is a hatred of vulnerability and a love for control, right? Unrighteous anger, we hate the idea of feeling vulnerable. We hate the idea of feeling helpless. We hate the idea of having to submit to God because we love being in control of our own life. And the moments where we come face to face with vulnerability, anger ensues. We lash out in order to grasp what we feel like we deserve. Righteous anger is instead a hatred of sin and a love for the beauty of God. So, when you see injustice, you can be angry at that, but what's the difference? The difference between unrighteous and righteous anger is the trajectory of how they're expressed. Or, in other words, righteous anger leads us to God to appeal to God, whereas unrighteous anger takes the responsibility into our own hands to fix the wrongs. Does that make sense? So in one, with unrighteous anger, you're lashing out to punish, righteous anger appeals to God and says, this isn't right, are you going to do something about it, right? Appealing to authority. David does this here, he looks in the faces of his adversaries and he says, this is unjust, this is unjust, you guys believing lies, how long are you going to keep believing these lies, it's not fair, but he cries out to God about it, how long is this going to happen? How long are you going to keep letting this thing happen? You can go read through the Psalms, this is not the only one by the way, They're, it's everywhere, How long am I going to let this happen, God? How long? Then, point number two, David begins to express his anger, but righteously. Listen to verse four. Be angry and do not sin. How many of you read that and you're like, what? When I read that, I'm like, anger is pretty much the starting line for most of my sin. So now you're commanding me to be angry, just don't sin. I mean, that's like, go swimming, just don't get wet right? That seems pretty difficult. Be angry, don't sin. Now, this is important because I think it is the third way between our two default emotional engagements. One is try to repress and push away all anger. Don't feel it, but then you, you become like me, right? That just below the surface spiking because it is going to be manifest. Or we just embrace it all together and then we fall into sin. There's a third way, which is to engage with anger and not sin, How do you do that? Well, a few major ingredients from David. Ponder on your beds in silence, he says. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds, be silent. Or in other words, stop talking so much when you find the angry emotion coming. This is a loving shut your mouth, okay? That's what he says. We wanna talk our anger through. David says you need to silently work your anger through by shutting your mouth. We want to talk our anger through with a venting partner. Listen to me, I need someone to vent to. That means I need somebody else to dump all of my angry frustration on. And if my spouse is done with it, I got to find someone else, right? But David says, no, you're going to dump all of that angry frustration by closing your mouth and getting alone with God. Okay, hold on. Then he says, offer right sacrifices. Now, I wish that I had a whole sermon to talk about this, but very briefly, there is a direct correlation between works-based righteousness and angry living. If you live your life underneath religion, you will inevitably be angry with God. Here's why. Because if you think you can earn your salvation through good works, there's going to become a t- there's going to come a time in your life where the broken unjust world is going to meet face to face with your family, your loved ones, or even you, and you're going to feel slighted because you're going to look at God and say, "I've been serving you all this time. What the heck is this about?" But if you believe the gospel of grace, that means that Jesus got everything that you deserved. Everything that you got from Christ is meritless. It's not based on your merit. And therefore, living in a fallen world means there is going to be blows that we experience, difficulties we experience. But those are glancing blows in comparison to what Christ has gone through. And therefore, suffering can have meaning. But we don't get to look at God and say, hey, you didn't give me what I deserved. The gospel says you're right. You didn't get what you deserved. Jesus took it. But if you're the older brother in the prodigal son parable, you will live in anger eventually as you try to work the fields earning your keep in the kingdom. Does this make sense? So David says, offer right sacrifices. What's the right sacrifices? Well, Old Testament, it was doing specific things. New Testament, it's Jesus Christ, the perfect sacrifice. Resting in the finished work of Jesus, resting in the grace of God over your life, that you can't earn the unearnable. Now I think this is really key, especially with you being honest about what you really feel. Because if you can't earn the unearnable and God already loves you where you are, then maybe you can be honest with God about even your imperfect emotions. Okay, let's continue. Then he says, trust the Lord. What's at the heart of trust? Humility, right? You ever done a trust fall? You guys know this? Okay, the humility of a trust fall is, I can't catch myself, I'm hoping that these people will. I've been a part of a trust fall where a kid fell. It's brutal, okay, first of all. I made him do it again, he fell again. (laughs) He wasn't even heavy, it was brutal. So I made him do it again, they caught him. But it was tough, okay. Let me tell you, I felt like, okay, you guys are like one for three, this is failure. He can't trust you guys anymore, right, and they're going to do an internship together for years, it worked out. But the trust of all at its essence is humility and acknowledging there are going to be times where you need other people to catch you. When David says, trust the Lord, he says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God who's in control of everything, acknowledging that you're not in control, which is at the root of your anger. You feel like you're out of control of what you should be in control of. And trusting the Lord is saying, you have control, not me. Now, there's a story in the Bible about a guy named Jacob wrestling with God. You guys familiar with the story, anybody? Okay, I've done a poor job as a pastor, no raised hands. There's a story about a guy named Jacob. (laughs) Jacob. (laughs) <laughs> he uh, has a brother named Esau, whom he steals his birthright from and then runs away from his family because Esau's so angry he promises to kill his brother Jacob, his little brother. Now they're twins, so little brother is yeah, pretty close, minutes away. They were twins, but the youngest is not supposed to get the birthright, it's the oldest. Well, Jacob cheats him out of it and runs away. Now, Jacob ends up rising up as a great man who has a you know pretty wealthy, pretty well-to-do, tons of kids. Esau ends up raising up the same way, but Jacob his whole life is afraid of meeting up with his brother one day again because his brother was the warrior of the family, Jacob was a mama's boy. Okay, He deals with this stuff his whole life, not feeling like he had his dad's approval. He cheated him his way into his dad's approval, all this stuff. He finds himself one day having to come face-to-face with Esau. And, and Esau has only told him, I'm going to kill you next time I see you. So Jacob, on one side of the river, starts saying, he's getting nervous. So he says, all right, I'm going to send my cattle ahead. And I'm going to send some servants to say, all these cattle are yours, Esau, from Jacob, your servant. He's like, then I'm going to send my kids, you know. Listen, if it's a tough time, send your kids out. Like, here, go. go. You ever done that before? Awkward situation. Here, meet my child, you know. (laughs) If he put a baby in his arms, maybe he can't swing. You never know. Sends the kids out. Then, as, as though Jacob wasn't a squirrel enough, he sends his wives. He says, go ahead. Talk to my wife. Like, go talk to my brother. They've never met his brother. Like, go talk to my brother. And then it's Jacob all alone on one side of the river, and all of his family is trying to meet up with Esau before he has to come face to face with his deepest fears. And then it says in the Bible that a man starts to wrestle him in the middle of the night. Now, talk about an awkward moment in the Bible, right? You're camping out alone on the river, and this guy comes out of the woods, and he doesn't want to rob you. He just wants to have a wrestling match. I'm not kidding. This is there. This there says they wrestle all night long. Jacob actually starts to prevail. The guy touches his hip socket and puts it out of joint. Jacob is forever marred. It says he walks with a limp the rest of his life, and he loses the battle with, with this man. But Jacob said, I won't let you go until you bless me. In this moment, there's this real deep anger and anguish that Jacob's working out. This anger that has built up over a long, par- long period of time in his life. Anger at his uncle Laban, who was also a cheat, another part of the story. Anger at his own brother. Anger at his dad. Anger at his mom. And he's like, you know what? God, finally you're going to bless me. He realizes this guy he's wrestling with is not just anybody. He's wrestling with God. And God says to him, I'm going to give you a new name. He gives him a new identity. He's like, you're no longer Jacob, which Jacob, by the way, means Cheater not a great name. He says, I'm going to name you Israel, which means you have striven with God. Now, you got to think for a mama's boy to be able to wrestle with God and stick around, you know, you feel good. He's striven with God and lived. Gives him a new name, gives him a new identity. And in our culture, I think one of the things that we have lost greatly is our ability to wrestle with God in prayer over the things that really deeply wound us and make us angry. Our culture is so unwilling and unable to struggle with God, we've become so over-medicated, media and entertainment saturated, distraction-filled. We've become a mess of human and divine disconnectedness in a really connected world. We just can't wrestle with these deep things, so we just go to the pharmacy line in order to numb the feelings that we're having. Or we go to Netflix in order to numb the feelings that we're having. Or we just try to find ways in order to not be present with the very realities of sin and brokenness that are constantly coming against our hearts. And the the, the ancient fathers and mothers of old didn't have that. What did they do? They had other ways to try to dodge it, but then God would show up. And here's the thing. God hasn't changed. He still does the same thing with us. God shows up. If, If God had never shown up on that side of the river, you think Jacob would have wrestled with his deep issues? No. God had to pursue. God had to show up and wrestle with him so that he could get a new name, so that he could get a new identity. John Bloom says this, when God makes us wrestle with him for some blessing, it is not because God is reluctant to bless us, even if that's how it at first feels. It's because he has more blessings for us in the wrestling than without the wrestling. It means that when he allows you to go through this thing that you're angry with him about because the injustice of the world doesn't add up to the promises of God and you finally are able to say, you know what, I'm mad at you, God, because this doesn't seem fair, that ultimately God is promising that there's more joy in the sorrow than there would have been outside of the sorrow. And you won't actually know that, experience it without coming to him. You see, the call of righteous anger to the Christian, is a call to move towards God with your deepest questions, your deepest frustrations, and your most complexing, confounding circumstances of life and to be honest about them. Isn't it weird how what we do is we, we have our, our prayer life that maybe is in your journal, and then we have what's actually going on in our heart. So for me, I'll tell you, like when I read David, I'm like, it's unfiltered and it's uncomfortable. I'm like, that is not a wise way to engage with God. Like I never start my prayers with, God answer me. Uh, I'll tell you why, because if Jonas said, Dad, answer me, I'd say, you know, (laughs) just spar to him right out of the door. You know, that's not how you talk to Dad. I know, I have problems. We already talked about my anger, but... I have a really highly edited version of my prayer life, and here's why. I say, here's what I'm really feeling, and then here's my theological framework for what I should and shouldn't say to God, and then that gets like, kind of meshed through, and what happens is I have this highly edited Photoshopped version of my prayer life to God, which in the end is really fake. Now, here's the problem with that, is that God actually knows the unedited version. So he's just frustrated at the fact that I am constantly trying to basically pretend I'll say things like, Lord, I love and trust you, when deep down I'm saying I'm angry at you and you're actually not following through with your promises. And so what is happening? Well, Jesus said it like this, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They say, oh, I love you, I trust you, because what that does is actually distances me from the truth, and the truth is I'm mad. This isn't right, this isn't fair, we live in a broken world, I'm trying to be obedient to you, and all you keep doing is this stuff. And I know in order to be righteous, I'm supposed to say I'll worship you to the end, so I do say that, but deep down I'm not feeling that. David just does the exact opposite. He says things like, you've forsaken me? It's because of your hand that my bones wear away? Like, you're the, your hand is against me, and that's why I am where I am? Like, listen, I'm a pastor. I would have, I would have whittled David up. I'd have been like, no, 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 David. It's because you're a sinner from birth. You even said in your own letters that you were conceived in iniquity. That's why you're experiencing this. And that's what Job's friends said to Job. No, 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 Job, you're experiencing suffering because because you're a sinner. Where's the hidden sin? Let's talk about that. And Job doubles down. I do not have hidden sin. It's not fair. And God doesn't show up and say Job was lying. God shows up and says, well, Job's friends are kind of idiots, like seminary graduates, you know, I don't know. That's a joke, Ty. All right, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you see, <laughs> we're gonna talk about that later. All right. <laughs> the kind of communion David's inviting us into here is the kind where truths are not neat and comfortable. In fact, these kind of encounters with God might wound you forever. They did Jacob but you know what else they gave him? A new identity, a new name, and that he got God. Now, that's the key here. See, the prosperity gospel says this. Come to God, he'll give you everything that you want. He'll change your circumstances as long as you have enough faith. The true gospel says, no, come to God because he's the only one who can answer. He's the only one that's real. You don't come to God because you know he's going to give you what you want. You come to God because he's the only God. Period. Period. And we come to God and we wrestle with God because he has the answers, not necessarily because we know he's going to give us the understanding immediately. How many of you have wrestled with God and he didn't just tell you, here's why, you've suffered your whole life. At 12 years old, I lost my dad, car accident, my eyelid was cut off, I was ejected from the vehicle, not a Christian, all that, you know, 20 years later now I can say, yeah, look at all the things God wired for my good and his glory because of that. Do you know what I didn't know at 12? Why he had to do it that way? Do you know what I still don't know at 30, 31? Why did he have to do it that way? And you know what God never promised to answer me? Why he had to do it that way? Do you know what he did promise me? If I'm willing to go and to wrestle with him, he said, I have a peace that I can give you that's beyond understanding. You think you need understanding, what you really want is peace. You think if I gave you all the answers in your small, finite, pea-sized brain court? that then and only then would you have the peace. No, I can give you the peace when you don't understand because I can give you myself. Because it's in the struggle with God that the righteous heart waits for God to reveal his character. See, in, in struggle, the righteous heart brings our anger to God and then we get to experience God for who he is. Not always get the answers to our problems. You ever wondered why God decided to put Noah in a boat in the middle of the storm rather than just bring him up to heaven and then resend him back down? If it's God, why didn't he just say, Noah, here's the thing, golden road, come up to heaven, we'll hang out, we'll have grapes, then I'll send you back down when the flood's over. He could have done that. Instead, he says, I want you to build a boat. Have you also not wondered why God didn't just build a boat? Secondarily, there were no boats, so how does does Noah know, oh, what's a boat? He doesn't know. There's never been rain. God knows what the ark's supposed to look like. He's got dimensions, everything, and he just created the world like six chapters ago. A boat is not really a big creative monster, and yet he says, Noah, build it, and then get your family in there and hang out in there for 40 days and 40 nights as I just completely demolish the rest of this mess. That's our lives many times hidden in Christ. Christ is our ark and he says, I'm not gonna take you out of the world because in the world you're gonna have tribulations, but take heart, I've overcome the world. You get me. And listen to me, friends, the hardship with that is that we don't truly believe that getting Christ is enough, but getting Christ is the only. Getting Christ is what we truly and deeply need. So I'll close with this. Righteous anger cries out to God for good. Unrighteous anger lashes out for harm and for justice. Unrighteous anger says, I'm gonna take it into my own hands and I'm gonna start harming the people who have been wronged to me. Righteous anger, like David shows here, cries out to God for good. So what he says, there are many who say who will show us some good. When you're suffering, anybody says that. When am I gonna see a good day? But watch what David says. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than when they have their grain and wine abound. In peace I will lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. David says this, I have more joy, which is what I'm really after, than when the rest of the world has their wine and their grain, because that's what they think they have joy in. What do those two things represent? Wine represents a medicating, numbing effect on the realities of the world. And I am totally okay with your liberty in Christ to have a nice beer in Jesus' name, okay? So don't get me wrong. And for those of you who don't like me saying that, we can talk to later about why you're wrong. (laughs) But wine has a way in the Bible of being used to numb, right? In Proverbs, it says, wine is a mocker that stings you in the end like a viper. that numbs away at the realities of the world. And David says, the world loves it when the wine runs freely, and that's where they think they have joy, that's where they think they can have a false sense of peace from this awful, chaotic world. But, but David says, in your presence, I have real peace. Then he says they have grain, and grain abounds. Grain's not just the satiation of hunger. Grain represents security in that day. This would have been like when their bank account abounds. Many of us, we have a false sense of security because our 401k looks great, the economy's booming, and things, things are just, oh, it's all good, we're secure David says, when everybody else's barns are full and they think that's what's gonna secure them, it's in your presence that I find security because the barns will burn, but you're forever. And so he's, he's crying out saying, I'm mad about this, but it's in you that I find these things, even in the midst of an injustice, even in the midst of brokenness. Close with this thought. Exodus chapter 34, verses six through seven. There's a moment where Moses asks God to see his glory. And God passes by Moses and there's this voice that comes out booming from the Lord. And there's this, this is spoken many times throughout your Old Testament. It's God revealing his character. This is like the I am moments. Says this, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. What are the two things that God says about himself when he passes by Moses? He says this, I am loving, I am slow to anger, I am patient, I am merciful, I am gracious, I'm abounding in steadfast love, I'm forgiving all of the transgressions and sins of those who call upon me, and I am just and I am unwilling to merely forget about injustice, and I hate sin. Now this is good news for the believer. It's good news for the believer on two fronts. Number one, Because we see a perfect picture of God's character in the Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. Because on the cross, we see God's unending grace, love, mercy, mixed with God's hatred for sin and consuming wrath against injustice. Because God pours His wrath out on His own Son rather than pouring it out on us. That's where God's love and justice meet. He says, listen, sin has to be dealt with. God hates it. God's righteously angry at sin. How does he deal with it? He says, I'm not gonna pour it out on those that I love. I'm gonna pour it out on the one that I love who's willing, Jesus. You know, the other thing that's important here to see is that each and every one of us moms on Mother's Day, when you shed tears over your kids, both here and lost, that God's able to bottle every tear, and he says, I will repay. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Every hardship, every difficulty, every hurt, every wound, every moment when we are angry at the injustices of a broken world, God says, I don't forget. Your imperfect acts of vengeance in this life will never touch the perfect justice of God. And he says, I will repay. So in the cross, what we see is that Jesus is absorbing the latter while extending to us the former. He absorbs the wrath and extends to us the love and forgiveness. So for you and for me, when we come before God, and listen to me, friends, this is what my fear is for you, is that many of you, your relationship with God is still based on the fact that you're afraid when I come to God, he's going to pour out wrath on me. If I'm honest with God, he's just going to say, who are you? And maybe he will. But what we think he's going to do is say, who are you? And then end us. You ever thought about the whirlwind experience with Job? Seems harsh, right? Job's just lost everything. He's just questioning God. And God says, "Uh, I got a few questions for you. It's like, oh, man. And then it's, where were you? Where were you? Where were you? Where were you? Oh, yeah, Job, you didn't exist. Pretty hardcore. If you ever want to read just a light reading, (laughs) read that one. You ever thought about this, though? God didn't show up and then just destroy Job, did he? Could have. Could have. Many of us, we live in that reality of I don't want to be honest with God because if I come to God, he's not only going to answer me in a way that I don't want to hear, but then he's going to just be done with me and continue to pour more on. Or maybe like this, I'm hurting God, why are you allowing the hurting? Say, oh, you think that's bad? How about this? That's what we're afraid of. What God does instead with Job is he engages with him, he answers him, and then what it says is he restores Job's fortunes. Now, here's my promise to you, is the Bible doesn't say that God's going to restore our fortunes in the way the prosperity gospel does, but he'll restore the fortunes of your soul. Because it's only in the presence of God that you'll find the peace you deeply need. And forever as you try to medicate or press down, push away, distance yourself, or lash out at everybody else with what's deeply going on, you're never going to find the joy that God has for you. But in Christ, but in Christ we have real joy, real peace, real safety. And so this morning my encouragement to you is this, come to him. You can come boldly because of Christ. You can come honestly because of Christ. You can come truthfully because of Christ. And don't neglect. Don't hold back. And here's why. Because God already knows. (laughs) You'll stand to your feet. Father, my heart is to pray for the moms in the room first. Would you put more joy in their heart than when wine and grain abound? For those that are just rejoicing fresh or rejoicing in general, would you increase that joy? For the moms in this room who have lost, for the moms in this room that have experienced distance from their children, would you now, my God, like you did with Jacob, pursue them as they try to distance themselves from you. As there's a tendency for us to push away, would you reach in, Lord, and meet us there? And Lord, for for the men in the room or for those that are not mothers in the room, as we try to rationalize away our pain through anger, Holy Spirit, would you invite us in Jesus, you're a faithful high priest. You know you sympathize with our weaknesses. You sympathize with our hurts. You have been where we are, Jesus. So would you now call us gently to yourself, bring healing and hope. Where we don't have understanding and may not on this side, would you bring the peace that surpasses understanding, Lord, because you've promised it. And as we sing, my God, I ask you to bring great freedom from the anger that's unrighteous. And let us rest in the arms of a just God. We pray it in Jesus' name.